Have you ever dealt with rejection? Has there ever been a time when your dreams were just at a standstill? Maybe you know what you want and you've even had a taste of your dream, but you're just caught in limbo right now, waiting for someone to give you your big opportunity. But what if you gave it to yourself? Today's guest is a writer and filmmaker who did just that. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and multi-passionate creative, and this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, spirituality, and everything it means to be a human and become more human. Today's guest is a human. His name is Joshua Brandon. Josh is a writer, director, and producer, best known for writing and directing credits such as CBS's Friend Me, Sci-Fi's Haven, Fox's Houdini and Doyle, and his debut feature film, A Thousand Little Cuts. He also recently co-authored William Shatner's book called Boldly Go, which is coming out this fall. So stay tuned for some really cool stories about the Shat. (laughs) I don't know if anyone actually calls him that, but I do now, I guess. Okay, so Josh came to America from Australia with a goal to be a TV writer. He did achieve the dream for a while, but then the dream dried up. And after years of yeses turned to noes and rejections, he finally decided to take his life and dreams into his own hands. He made his own production company and started writing and producing his own movies. His debut feature film, A Thousand Little Cuts, is on the surface a thriller. But if you peel back a layer, it serves as a feminist film for men. Yeah, you heard that right. As Josh says it, the film is fiercely feminist, but it's not really for women because, well, we already know all this stuff. It's for guys so that they can check their casually abusive behavior before it escalates. Powerful and Josh, bravo, way to use your privilege to help those who don't have that same privilege. From today's chat, you'll learn to take a chance on yourself and jumpstart your dream. Josh also shares great tips on how to ask for a favor when it comes to your career, how to pick yourself up after rejection, why relationships are everything, what it's really like inside of a writer's room, how to make art that affects change, and what William Shatner taught him about life and art. Now here he is, Josh Brandon. Thank you so much for being on Unleash Your Inner Creative. You are certainly a human who is unleashed, and I'm grateful to have you here. <laughs> Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, okay, I'm going to start you with a hard hitter. What does it feel like to have two first names? <laughs> you know, I get that a lot. Yeah. It's funny because the number of emails I get where someone will say, hi, Brandon, blah, 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 blah. And I, I'm thinking, no, no, I, I really do know my own name. So <laughs> the fact that I've written Josh in my signature or whatever, <laughs> you know, you, you can call me Josh or Joshua or what have you. But yeah, no, I get that a lot. <laughs> I wanted to also know if you felt connected to other two first namers out there. I do very much so. Uh, when, I, when I find them, I, I, make a, I make a point of saying hello. In fact, back in the early Facebook days when I you know, first had an account going back, I don't know, 15 years ago or whatever, I actually had a Facebook group called Josh Brandons of the World Unite. And there were about 20 of us on there, just celebrating the fact we all had that name. Always a leader, always bringing people together. I love that it started out with the two <laughs> first names. Now you're doing it in the film industry. It's beautiful. <laughs> right. Thank you. You know, I do a little intro for you later after we have our conversation. So by now, people will know you're a filmmaker. And I want to know, like, as a child, what were the first signs that this would be your journey someday? 
Oh, that's a good one. So the first signs for me that I wanted to make films were that I would watch movies that I loved or TV shows that I loved. You know, I'd watch Chicago Hope and think, oh, I want to be a, a doctor. And then I'd watch The Practice and think, no, I want to be a lawyer. I'd watch The West Wing and think, I want to get into politics. And then I realized, no, I don't want any of those things. I just want to tell the story. So that was the earliest, that was the earliest way I knew. When did you start verbalizing this dream? I must have been putting on little plays and making home movies with my friends by the age of seven or eight. And then by about 11, 12, I, I, I basically knew I had to write stories. I, I, had to, I had to produce. I had to make things happen. And when you brought that up, because you're a little kid living in Australia, right? Were, like, mm -hmm. yep. were people like, okay, good for you? Or were they like, yeah, you can do it, Josh? Like, How was that dream met? We have a thing in Australia called tall poppy syndrome, which is that people are very happy for you to pursue your goals and have lofty dreams. But then when you start to actually get up to succeeding, they want to cut you down. So when in America, I like to say people like a winner. When you say I'm a, I'm a writer, people say good for you. In Australia, if you were to say I'm a writer, I'm an actor, I'm a, I'm a director, they'd say, oh, yeah, OK, yeah. What have I what have you done? Uh, and what's like what's your real job? So there's a, there's a bit of that going on. I'm curious because I feel like that tall poppy syndrome actually does exist quite prevalently in Hollywood where I live. Mm. And I think you've at least lived here for a time. I don't know if you're still here. Where are you now? Yep. 14 years. Okay, yeah. cool. So I do feel like that still exists, especially when you're starting out. Like you say, oh, I am a writer. I'm a director. And they're like, cool. What have you done? That can be very jarring as a person because my whole thing is I don't believe in the word aspiring. If you're doing what you say you're doing, whether or not you're making money from it, you are that thing. How do you advise young filmmakers or young creatives of any sort when they meet that kind of reaction? How would you advise them to respond? Well, first, I totally agree. I got that advice the first week I was here. Somebody said to me, a guy, a friend of mine put me up at his house for a couple of weeks when I moved here with my cousin and we were looking for a place to rent. And we were out and somebody said, what do you do? And I said, I'm trying to be a writer. And later he said to me, you're not trying to be anything. You are a writer. You just yeah. haven't produced anything yet. So I love that advice. Kevin Smith talks about that. He said his sister used to say to him, you're a filmmaker, you just haven't made your film. I mean, the good news is if you surround yourself with the right people, then you want to encourage them. They want to encourage you. And, and hopefully if they're also filmmakers in the aspiring category, if you like, or, or still, still building up their resume, they'll have a similar reaction. That's great, you know, and, and they won't ask, what have you done in a cynical way? They'll ask, what have you done? Like, can I see what you've done? I find it's the people who, are either like just on the cusp of being in the industry who have thrown a lot at the wall and maybe haven't succeeded or the people who are outside of the industry but live in Hollywood who have the more cynical approach. You know, you go to a restaurant and and, and somebody says to your server, what do you do? And, and he or she says, I'm an actor. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah, what have you done? Because maybe they couldn't get into it. But I, I still like to to feel that it's, it's, uh, it's a place of opportunity if you're willing to just go for it. That's so true because I met Brandy Carlisle recently and mm -hmm. she's, as you know, like an amazing musician and singer. And the person introducing me to her said, this is Lauren. She's also a musician. And she wasn't like, oh, really? Let me let me get your resume. She was like, that's amazing. Have you heard the new album by? And then she said some band that I hadn't heard. I'm like, no, I haven't heard it yet. She's like, you're going to love it. Check it out. That's lovely. I just thought that that was such a cool reaction because she instantly recognized me instead of being like, oh, really? Well, what are you doing here then? You know, since I was like, I was actually producing a podcast at that time. And it's so true that people who feel secure in themselves don't respond that way. Right. Yeah. She didn't feel threatened. She was, you know, it's not like 
hey, Lauren's going to take my job as Brandy Carlisle. So right. how can I help? Let me pay it forward, you know? Right. So, okay, you decide to go after this dream, which I think is exponentially harder when you're coming from another country right. to pursue a dream. First off, how did you get like the self-love and the courage to decide to go all the way around the world to pursue what was on your heart? This is a two-edged sword. There's a lot of people who leave a place, whether it's here in the States or they come from somewhere else in the world or they, or they go anywhere to try to pursue a dream. There's either the, I have to prove everybody right, or sorry, I have to prove everybody wrong, or I have to prove everybody right. And I'm in the latter category. I, I got a lot of encouragement at home. My friends were happy to be in my little movies. The school I was at, they let me do plays. My parents were encouraging. You know, as long as I, I did my homework and I got good grades, I was allowed to pursue whatever I wanted. So there was a lot of encouragement there, which helps, but it's the double-edged sword of it is now you have to prove that everybody had placed their faith in you correctly. So the self-love is is as much about getting that encouragement and then trying to to pay them back for all of the, the love they've given you. So it was really about you wanted to make the other people who had supported you and been the wind beneath your wings, basically, you wanted to prove that they were right and that their vote of confidence in you and being an early investor in your life and career was a good move. Yeah, that's exactly it. When I made a, I made a little film. I was obsessed with the Godfather movies in my teens. So I made a little Godfather knockoff called The Family Business. It was about 40 minutes long. I had this little camcorder and it had a, a filter that turned it into sepia. So part of it was set in the 90s, part of it was set in the 50s, like the whole Godfather 2 ripoff. And I said to my father, can you help me fund this movie? I already have a camera and I've got friends that will do it. He said, how much do you need? I said, $200. He said, great, but uh, do I get to name my production company that goes at the top of the film? I said, sure. He goes, okay, call it Down the Drain Productions. <laughs> so with a wink and a nod, he gave me the money. <laughs> I love that. I love that your dad got involved and like thought of himself as an investor and helped you take yourself seriously while also having a little bit of fun. Yeah. And my mother was the caterer and she appeared in my, my films and my sister was in one of my films and my dad was in one of my films. My cousins were in all my films. Everybody was happy to just participate, you know? Yeah. If you had to give advice to somebody who's listening who has a creative kid, mm -hmm. what would your advice be based on what your parents did right for how to encourage their dreams? I would tell them nurture that spark because it's there. You know, it, it, it's like being left-handed. You can't beat it out of them. My sister's left-handed. And I had teachers at school who were formerly left-handed who had it beaten out of them, but they had this weird, you know, deformed handwriting. So I like to use that as the example. You're born with it. If you have a kid who really feels creative, by all means, give them the tools necessary to learn about what they might have to do to support themselves in the meantime. I always feel like my parents telling me to get good grades and teaching me about money and how to pay your bills and all that. I thought that was vital. But at the same time, encourage them. You know, how can I help? What can I do for you? Do you want me to appear in your movie? Do you want me to read something you've written? You know, can I connect you with somebody? I remember, I think for my 16th birthday, my parents said, what do you want? And I said, I want somewhere to edit my movie because I had no way of editing it. And they asked a friend of a friend of a friend who knew somebody who worked at the New South Wales Art Gallery in media. And he said, yeah, we have an editing you know, system. He, he can come over and edit it here. And that was my birthday present. Wow. Okay, let's get to your move. So you decide to haul your body all the way from Australia to Los Angeles. Yeah. How did you overcome any fear you had in doing it? And like a big topic on the show is fear and taking fear out of the driver's seat. Maybe it's going to be there, but like it shouldn't be making the choices, right? So how did you mm -hmm. overcome your fear to do that, to drag your body across the entire globe? And what's your current relationship with fear? 
<laughs> when I moved, I was 24, but I'd been planning it since I was about 22 and a half. My cousin, Stephen had won the green card lottery and he'd already moved over a year before I did. Now, we we ran and owned a theater company together. So his first thought was, I'll go to New York and see what I can do in the theater scene. But it was so difficult there in the indie theater scene. And he knew my preference had always been to be more involved in, in film and TV. And he was all into that as well. So he said, well, I'll move to LA if you move to LA. So the fear was a little bit allayed by having somebody to do it with mm. and having that kind of lead time. I mean, it felt like forever. I remember when I finally said, nope, I'm leaving. I Like February 2008, I'm going. And this would have been late 2006, maybe early 2007 when it started to become possible. And then May 2006, nine or 10 months or whatever, that's when I went, okay, I'm, I'm giving notice. I'm going to start wrapping things up. You know, I had to send all of my stuff over. So there was a lot of reality that confronted that fear. And my, my feeling was, if I don't do it now, my bigger fear is regretting it later. Mm. Does that still drive you today? Like when you're about to be afraid of something and maybe fear is like taking over over your own like desire. Is that fear of regret the deeper fear that pushes the fear of whatever you're doing out of the driver's seat? Yeah, the fear of regret is real. I'd much rather regret the things I did than the things I didn't do. Yeah. Uh, so yes, always, if you're worried, oh, uh, what if I do this and it's no good? What if you don't do it and you never do it? So I never want to die wondering. I do have a lot of international listeners. I think actually Australia is maybe like my third most listened to country. What's your right. advice for other people in other countries who do have a dream to either move to America or another country to pursue their dreams? Like, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I intellectually knew that it wasn't going to be easy. Yeah. It's measures harder now than it even was back then when it wasn't easy. I, I wish I'd been a little more realistic about how hard it was. And the fact that it's an ongoing struggle. That's what I didn't realize. I thought once you make it, you've made it. Once you're in, you're in. So when Stephen and I sold a pilot less than two years after being here, which was kind of unheard of, we thought we've made it. We're in the industry. But then the pilot never got made. The president of ABC family was promoted to the president of ABC. And then the new president came in and scrapped everything that his predecessor had done. So we didn't get made. And we thought, oh, I guess they just shifted the goalposts. Then two years later, we got staffed on a CBS sitcom. And we thought, great, we're staff writers. We've made it. It never aired. So it's just one fight after another. And that I didn't know before I moved. That is such a good point. I was actually just talking about that with a friend. It's like... There's the anxiety of the journey and like, will I ever get my big break? And then once you get whatever your big break is, there's the anxiety of keeping it up, going further, or if you fall behind, getting back to it. And right. that's something that I don't know why a lot of people don't talk about. It's not just like a steady path. It's like this weird, windy path. Sometimes you're going backwards. Sometimes you're going forward. Yeah. Like, how do you deal with the anxiety of that? <laughs> I just try to keep my eyes on the prize. I just try to keep creating. And this is this is another piece of advice that I picked up along the way, just in more recent times. I worked steadily on, on TV shows, you know, and developing in between for about four or five years. I was on a show for Fox called Houdini and Doyle. And in 2016, it was canceled. And I thought, well, that's okay, because I'm, I'm going out. I mean, I was devastated. It was, it was like, I'm an amateur magician. I love history. So for me, that was the perfect show to be on. So I was devastated when it was canceled. But I thought in terms of my career, well, I've got a show that's been optioned. I'm going out. I'm pitching it. I'll sell that show. So I'll be back on track. I didn't sell the show. Following year, I'm developing again. Okay, so it's been a year since I've worked. But I got a brilliant piece of IP with some amazing producers attached. 
We put some people together. We took it to Canada to pitch it to the major networks to try to get a deal here and whatever. And I thought, well, that's fine because I'll sell that. Didn't sell it. 2018 comes around. Now it's been two years since, since I've worked. And I'm developing again. I've got a great show. Sony is attached. I've got a big showrunner attached. I think this is great. We take it to the networks. I didn't sell it. So suddenly I'm like three years away from actually actively having worked and been paid. And, and suddenly I realized I should have been making something in the meantime. Mm-hmm. I should have made a short film. I should have done some theater. I should have done something. So in 2019, I got my act together. I made my first short film. And by the end of the year, I directed my first feature. But you have to keep creating. Ooh, put it on a t-shirt, honey buns. That's right. <laughs> I love that so much. Okay, so let's get through this journey a little bit. You get here. How long from the time your feet hit the ground to you getting your first job? Do you say it was about two years? It was two years before I got my first real writing job. I, I'd been hired to do a couple of little bits and pieces along the way, which was which was huge. I met a producer at the gym of all places, and he hired us to do a rewrite on an indie script. It didn't go anywhere, but... You know, in terms of being paid to write a couple of grand, that was the first thing we did. But I got hired as a PA at Warner Brothers within the first year of being here. And it was on a pilot. It looked great. You know, I was there for four weeks, but then that's it. Pilot didn't get picked up. So what do you do? You move on to the next thing. And then I was, I I took a job as as a part-time assistant to a producer just at his house, just trying to find any, any measure of work I could. So you were doing a lot of like freelance stuff, production assistant stuff, and that's how you made ends meet while you were pitching your shows. Yeah, that, that's what I did. But I also came over with a lot of money in my bank account. I saved and saved and saved before I came over and I was frugal. You know, my, my go-to place to shop was the 99 cent store and you, you just had to do that. Now, I, I'll also tell you that in 2008, coming here to LA, the rent seemed so cheap in comparison to Sydney and it's still cheaper than Sydney but for people coming from Ohio or Idaho or or wherever it was really expensive but for me my cousin and I were renting a two-bedroom two-bathroom two-parking space townhouse in Hollywood in an okay-ish area and it was 1600 bucks a month and it's probably twice that if not more now so I kind of got lucky in that level too right and that's so interesting you moved here during the financial crisis yeah. Well, I guess it played out that year. But what I always felt was a little bit of kismet was that we arrived on a Sunday and the very next day the writer's strike ended. So I always thought that was a good sign. Yeah. It was like, oh, they've arrived. Now we can stop picketing. Now we can stop. <laughs> yeah. Although I always remember feeling an inkling of regret because my plan to network was to go to the picket line and meet writers. That would have been brilliant. Well, you should still yeah. write something like that. You know, I For feel sure. like that's a great idea. Okay. So- you eventually got the job on Fox's Houdini and Doyle. Can you explain for those that don't know, what does being inside of a writer's room really look like? Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of the rooms now have changed. Sometimes they're they're partially within a physical room. Other times it's a little bit of work from home. But a typical writer's room, depending on the size of your show and its budget, will have anywhere from six or seven to 15, 16 people. And essentially, a lot of the time you sit around a long conference table and one of the showrunners or or high-level writers will kind of run the room. And that means that they'll talk anything from character arcs to long story ideas to individual episode ideas to breaking the story, meaning going through act one, what's our first scene? Where do we want to start? Who enters? What are they going to do? How do we follow that? When do we pick that up later in the script? And so there's a lot of talking and a lot of stuff on a whiteboard and a lot of just spitballing ideas and seeing what works. I miss it. <laughs> mm. So do you write mostly like solitary now, like solitary confinement? I do now. 
I do, I do. But on my last script, which I'm hoping to make next year, I've got this really exciting sort of family comedy that, and I've been out of comedy for a while, so it's kind of fun to get back into it. I was able to call on the help of a lot of old friends from my comedy days and some recommendations from them. One of them was Andy Gordon, who I met on Friend Me, the CBS show we were on that didn't get aired. And he, he's been on everything. He, he wrote for Just Shoot Me back in the day and Mad About You, and he's written for Big Bang Theory and Modern Family. And he's just one of the nicest writers, uh, one of the nicest guys, one of the best writers in the world. I called him and said, Andy, I'd love to ask a favor. Can you recommend a few people who could come into a room with me for a day and act like a comedy room and punch up the jokes and all that? He said, yeah, and and I'm available too. So I was just thrilled. Aww. So he brought in a writer from United States of Owl where he was working with Chuck Lorre. And I got some other writers, some of whom I met on Twitter. And we all got in a room and, and did a writer's room for the day. So that was really fun. Okay, so talk to me. You're on Twitter. You're like, I need to find some funny people. How do you start <laughs> reaching out? And obviously, you've got a bigger criteria than that. But how do you start reaching out to people and saying, hmm, would you like to join my one-day writer's room? Like, what's your pitch to these people? Well, the relationships come first. So mm -hmm. it was going to Twitter, speaking to people I already had connected with in the weeks and months earlier. And, you know, you keep in touch with people. You see people who have a similar sense of humor to them. You follow them. They follow you back. They make a joke. You reply. And then when the moment comes, when the stars align, you realize, hey, I've got a, a gig for you. You know, it's not going to pay anything, but you get a bottle of wine and a lunch. You know, do you want to come and crack jokes with me for a day? And so I was able to, to do that. I reached out to a, a great prolific Twitterer named uh, Yelena War, who she was most famous for, I think at the height of the impeachment thing, she put out a little fake sketch where it's the West Wing characters reacting to the impeachment. <laughs> and it took off online and like Rhea Seahorn wound up doing a, a whole online performance of it with a bunch of other actors. So she was, she was really prolific and she and I had become friends. And I said, hey, you crack me up. I would love to invite you to this room. And then she actually put forward another writer who it turned out I had a, a friend in common with. And it was just a wonderful time. But that's, that's the thing. If, if you're networking genuinely yes. to make friends and make contacts – then the relationships come first and the opportunities will flow naturally from that. Thank you, Josh. See, this is why I love your brain. It's so true because I think so many people reach out and they're like, hey, could I pick your brain? And it's like, well, you don't even know my brain. Like, right. get to know my brain before you try to pick it. Like, take me out to dinner. God. So I love this <laughs> idea of authentic networking because I think too often people just look, what can I get from you? Instead of being like, how can I know you? And then how can we help each other? And I love that right. you highlight that. Look, I, I've been there the, the wrong way. In the early days, I went to a lot of Writers Guild events when I first got in. And I'm meeting people and handing them my business card and everything. And it's meaningless because everybody's doing that. Yeah. And then you, you realize you're becoming one of these people. Who else is here? Right. You know? And I just didn't want to be that person. <laughs> Right. And for listeners, I mean, Josh was just looking around, like scanning the room, seeing who's there. Who? Sorry, I forgot. It's, it's, a, no, it's, it's a visual and an audio medium. We're on video, so it's confusing. But it's so true. Yeah. It's like you want to, I don't know, heart first, people first. People are everything. And yeah. if you have good people in your life, I feel that success is almost inevitable because of well, all the I, reasons. I, one, of, one of my mentors has told me time and again, invest in people, not ideas. Because if you get the right people, the ideas will come. And for me, that's the same with just be friends with people, network with people who you have something in common with, whose ideals you share. And if there's an opportunity for them to help you or for you to help them, it'll come about. You'll suggest it. They'll suggest it. It'll come out naturally. Right. I love that. So, okay, we're going to go to this stretch, this three-year stretch after Glennon and Doyle 
Wait, is that what it's called? No. Glenn, I worked with Glennon Doyle, so I was confused for a second. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, his, his, um, so this is Houdini and Doyle. Okay. A fan actually drew this. Wow. Because we didn't, we didn't have a big fan following, but we had a devoted fan following. And somebody else actually made these Houdini and Doyle Funkos. Her name is Ashley. She was a Twitter fan, and she found us online and made them. So these were the three characters. That's Harry Houdini. That's Arthur Conan Doyle. And... This is Adelaide Stratton, who was the first female constable in, in the show of Scotland Yard. So someone actually went to the trouble of, of making these. And I, yeah. I commissioned a pair for myself, a pair for each of the showrunners, and then one for each of the actors who played these characters. That's so cool. You made a big impression on less people maybe than the network would have wanted. But like you changed people's lives and impact matters. I think that's beautiful. I, I love I love that. Yeah, impact matters. And we're still really close. I'm still friends with all the writers and the showrunners still give me advice to this day. And Adelaide, played by uh, Canada's Rebecca Lydiard, she wound up starring in my first film. So it's it's a beautiful way that, you know, it all comes back together. So true. And it sounds like that was like a really positive environment. So you probably left there feeling pretty hopeful. And I know you talked about you were just like getting a lot of... <gasps> almost and then rejections in that period until you decided to make your own thing. How did you not let the rejections destroy you? How did you move through them and keep your passion and learn from them, but not let them destroy you? I guess I didn't have a choice because I come all the way out here. I wasn't going to turn around and go home. So I thought, all right, if, if I'm, if I'm not getting my message across in the current TV landscape, I have to pivot. What else can I do? How else can I be creative? Mm. And so for me, it was, make a short film. And I had an idea and I remember thinking, well, you know, I can direct actors. I was a theater director, but I don't really know anything about how to direct on camera. But in between all of my writing jobs, I would call up friends and showrunners and writers and producers and say, hey, can I come and learn from you? And one of my earliest mentors is a fellow named Robert Duncan McNeil. And the Star Trek fans among you might remember him as Lieutenant Tom Paris on Star Trek Voyager. And since that show, Robbie has turned into one of the go-to TV directors in the industry. And I met him by chance when I was here on a, on a Star Trek set tour that a friend had organized for me back in 2000. Eight, nine years later, I showed back up, reached out to him, and he said, great, I'll introduce you to my agent. So when, when he was producing and directing on a couple of shows, I would call him and say, hey, where are you? Can I come learn? And he would say, yeah, I'm doing Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce for Bravo. We're up in Vancouver. I said, great, when's good? I'll get on a plane and I'll put myself up. So I did a week there. One of my Haven showrunners, Sean Pillar, was doing a show in Toronto called Private Eyes. And on three separate occasions, I flew myself to Toronto, put myself up and I watched him on set and I went to Foley and I learned about posts and I went on location scouts and editing. And I just, by osmosis, tried to pick up as much as I could to the extent that when I finally had to direct a movie, even though I didn't know what lenses to use, I kind of knew... <laughs> how to make a shot work. And by virtue of, again, just being friends with people in the industry, all moving up together, I called up my buddy, Tim Reese, who was a director of photography and by this point had won an Emmy. And I said, Tim, would you shoot my film for me? And he said, oh. absolutely. And I, I've made three films, two features in a short, and he's been the DP on all of them. I just love your story so much because you really do live that statement that relationships, human relationships are everything. And if you have the right ones, if you have beautiful, great people who are also talented, but at the core, good people in your life, yeah. the dots just kind of will connect. Like if you ask for the help and you offer something to, the dots somehow find a way to getting connected. 
Absolutely, they do. Yeah. The same can be said in, in any area because you just have to be willing to pay it back, of course. Of course. And I think they all know any any favor that they wanted, I would I would grant if it were in my power. And another one uh, whom I adore is my friend Joe Fulton. He was he was a, a PA around the time that I started being a PA and Stephen, my cousin, was a PA. And he was interested in post-production. And I remember he would show me these little videos he was working on and this great... Um, What's that Gordon Lightfoot song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald? He did this amazing video all about the history of the of the wreckage. And he worked his way up, became a post PA, became an assistant editor, became an editor. And he was working on things. And I said, Will you edit my short? I don't have a lot of money, but I'll pay you, I'll pay you something. And I did. And he did an amazing job. And then he edited my first feature. And while he was editing it, got nominated for an Emmy for his work on Will and Grace. So, and then the funniest thing with Joe is when I did my second film, when I made my second film, I had another editor who who came on board to do it because I thought Joe's been nominated for an Emmy now. The the rate that I'm paying would be insulting to him. And later he came to me and said, hey, how come you didn't ask me to edit your film? And I said, I thought it would be beneath you. He said, no, I'll work with you. So that was really exciting. I mean, now I've worked with amazing editors in different arenas, but it's just nice to know that the relationships are really what's important, not the money. Totally. And also, like, I think everybody wants to be included on a really cool group project, you know? It's not like you're out there, like, making hacky films. You're making really important, great films that you're attempting to change the narrative around certain social issues, you know? Like, these are important things that people would want to work on. I think we just, we undervalue ourselves sometimes and don't see ourselves in the same beautiful light other people do. Sometimes you get to make hacky films, too, and they're fun. Because they can pay the bills and it's just an exciting thing to work on, you know. The beautiful thing about where I am now, I've gone from, oh my God, where's my next TV gig coming from? To, hey, I just produced four films last year and I'm producing another four next year with my partners, uh, Peter Foldy, who's been a mentor of mine since I was a kid, Ronnie Wiskup and Duke Fleischer. And we all just met trying to make these things happen. Okay, so let's talk about your first short film and feature length film. How did these come to be? The short film was just an idea I had. And then once I became convinced that I could and should make something myself, I thought, all right, I got to find out if this idea has been done. And at the time it had not. It was about guy comes home from a business trip and he's got one of the, you know, the Amazon Alexa things, right? And it says like, welcome home. And then basically goes through all of his credit card expenses and his hotel purchases and puts together that he had an affair while he was away and blackmails him into buying Amazon stuff or, or it'll tell his wife. That's so good. Yeah. I tell people, you can go, it's still on the website, alexaknowsall.com. It's four and a half minutes long. It's a lot of fun. It stars Jonathan Sadowski, Rachel Nichols. It's, it's really, really fun. Oh my gosh. I really want to watch that. That sounds amazing. <laughs> okay. So you did that. How did you put it out? You put it on the website. Did you put it into short film festivals? Yeah. We, we actually did have it in a couple of festivals and uh, it was in a couple of good ones. There was one in LA that we were really excited about because we were all going to go see it. And I bought 20 tickets for friends and everything. And then that was in March 2020. Oh, wow. And the theater said, uh, you know what? We're spreading because this is we didn't know anything back then. And they thought, oh, well, you get it by touch. So we're going to spread everybody out. And it's a 200-seat theater. We're going to make sure that we don't sell more than 50 tickets. And I said, I don't know if I want to go to this. And we all said, no, we're not going to go. And they never gave us a refund. And they went ahead with it. I don't know who caught COVID that night, but it wasn't us. So that kind of killed that in its tracks. But then we did a website with some behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, photographs. And and we got the whole cast together on Zoom. And we did a little behind-the-scenes kind of, here's how we made the film. And we're coming to you on Zoom because we can't get together in person. So we we made the best of it that we could. 
I didn't realize that this was all happening so recently. So, okay, A Thousand Little Cuts, was that your first feature? Yes. So A Thousand Little Cuts was made before the pandemic, but okay. it came out like it was it was dramatically pushed back because of the pandemic. Whereas Alexa was also made before the pandemic, but we finished post and got it into festivals right before COVID hit. Whereas with A Thousand Little Cuts, we had just started editing in February 2020 and then it just, it basically took us a year and a half to, to get everything done because in the meantime, you know, we couldn't edit in person. We couldn't do anything in person. We had access to equipment at universities that we couldn't get into. So it just pushed everything back and then we didn't in, end up releasing it until late 2021, early 2022. What did that do to you as somebody who had a little momentum going? You had gotten into festivals. People were liking the short film. You felt like, okay, I've got this next thing that I'm just going to roll out to be pushed back that much. Like, how did that affect you as a creator it was devastating because it just kept getting pushed back just i had look i had the same experience with the pandemic in terms of its disruption to my professional life that most people did right it just kept pushing things back we thought okay a couple of weeks we'll be out of this a couple of months we'll be out of this how is it going to be a couple of years so when it became clear look we're not leaving our houses for a while or we're not setting foot on film sets for a while i just continued to chip away at the film and post whatever we could do remotely but then I turned my eyes to a bigger prize, which is it's not enough for me to want to make a movie. I want to make a movie industry. I want to make films. Even if sometimes I'm making the thing that my distributor says, hey, I can sell this, you know, make this goofy film or make this this rom-com or whatever, because it's got an audience. Then when you've made a few of those, you can make your next art house film or whatever. I started looking for material. I started talking to other producers and I, I started solidifying our relationships with, with our other producers and they had crew and we just started figuring, okay, when this thing ends, we want to be back on set. So what are we going to do next? And then we, in 2021, we made four films. So do you feel like in a way the pandemic made you zoom out as an artist and say, okay, I don't want to live hand to mouth, like film to film. I want to be a full-time filmmaker. Like, Obviously, we know how it affected you adversely, but how did that pause actually benefit you long term? I mean, that was my goal anyway, but I think the fact that we couldn't do anything else really focused me on that. Because if we had finished the film, then I would have been all about, great, I made my first film. I can rest on that. I'm going to try to put it into festivals and get the word out. And I would have just been focusing on one thing. But instead, I couldn't do anything with the movie. I couldn't finish it. So I put my eyes towards, okay, well, what's what's going to come next? Because I don't want to be caught flat-footed again the way I was when, when I left Houdini and Doyle, where I thought, yeah, just having one project per year, that'll do me. I had to have more. So yes, it did, it did help me zoom out and focus, weirdly enough. How important do you think planning is in a creative's life? I think it's critical. The problem is that a lot of creatives don't necessarily possess the planning gene right off the bat. So you have to teach yourself that. You have to be business-minded and plan-focused as well as creative. That's becoming that kind of hyphenate status is becoming more and more important than ever before. You can't just be the tortured artist who goes away, locks yourself in a cabin, comes out three months later with a script or a book or something like that. The world's moving too fast. The media are changing. The, you know, the individual mediums that you have to, you have to produce content for, they're all changing. And, and what everybody wants, what the marketplace wants keeps changing as well. If you're not a person who's particularly planning inclined, what are some tips on how to start getting better at planning? I would say two things. One, team up with somebody who's great at planning, who may not have the creative gene, and maybe the two of you will make a film, you'll write it and direct it, and somebody else will produce it. And the other thing is, if you want to get better at planning, start by creating routines. Just 
become a list person, write stuff down and then check it off when it's done. I read something online that, that really, that really hit home with me. It was like 92% of plans fail just because of inadequate routine. Mm. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it definitely got me thinking and just the simplest things of, okay, I'm going to set my alarm for X time tomorrow. I'm going to give myself half an hour to start the day. And then at 8.30, I'm going to be at my desk or at 9.15, I'm going to read that script or at 10.30, I'm going to make that phone call and just get better at establishing routines for yourself. What's a small routine? Maybe something like what you're saying, like getting up a half an hour early, getting your day started that has helped you then go ahead and make bigger plans in your life. Like, is there one that you can see had a direct correlation? Honestly, I started just getting really pedantic with my calendar. Mm. You know, I have it on my phone and it's on my computer and I just, you know, anything, even I had a note in my phone today that was on my calendar that there was a script rewrite that I had to read and then I had to read the producer's notes on it because we have a call tomorrow. And I thought, well, I'm not just going to, I know I have to read it, but I'm not just going to leave that to chance. I'm putting it in the calendar, 12 o'clock, read this script, you know, before my next call. That's really good. That's something that I know I forget to do all the time is like even putting in the calendar, like practice your guitar or remember to like free write for 30 minutes. These things make a big difference because then it's accountability with yourself. Yeah. And and the reminders are great too. With everything in my phone, if it's a task that I don't have to leave the house for, I've got a 30 minute reminder and a 10 minute reminder. If I have to leave the house and it's far away, it's like a 90 minute reminder. And if it's something in the morning, I have a reminder the night before or, and the day before, like 16 hours ahead, 10 hours ahead. So I see it before I go to bed, then I wake up, you know, so it can sound pedantic, but it has definitely helped me to be a a very organized person. I love it. Pedantic. It's a great SAT word. (laughs) (laughs) I remember learning that for the SATs, actually. You probably don't have those in Australia. We don't have the SATs. No, we we have something different. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk a little bit about A Thousand Little Cuts. I took this. I swiped this from the bio that your publicist sent me. The story is actually about domestic abuse and the second-class experience in which many women find themselves living. The irony of this film is that it's fiercely feminist, but it's not really for women because they know all of this. It's for the guys to check their casually abusive behavior before it escalates. Why is this important for men who are creating things to use their privilege to shed a light on injustice that women and other minority groups experience on a daily basis? For me, it's the comparison I like to make is to male and female pop stars or musicians, which is that you can get women to go see a male pop star, but you can't usually get men to go see a female pop star unless they're being dragged to it by by a significant other. And so with that in mind, I kind of thought it's too easy for a guy to tune out of a film that kind of has a, a feminist message or a message about understanding domestic violence or domestic abuse from a, from a woman's point of view. Whereas maybe if I make it not from my perspective, but as a guy making this film, maybe there's a degree to which I can hook a few more guys into, into watching it and to having those conversations. And I've got to say it every, you know, the film's out on Showtime, but we did have some theatrical screenings and we had some festivals and some public screenings beforehand. And every time people see it in a group, when Husbands see it with their wives when women see it with their boyfriends or partners or whatnot. It always creates a discussion. And the the great thing is, from my point of view as a filmmaker, that's what I wanted to do. There's a lot of interesting moments in the film where they're very polarizing. And somebody will say, oh, well, I don't know about that. And, and I'll say, yeah, neither do I. But you're talking about it. So that's okay. 
you know? So, okay, I've heard a lot of male writers say something like this. I can't write that many women because, like, I don't really know how to write women. What do you say to guys who are, like, using that as an excuse for a cop-out of why there aren't more women in their film or why they don't write women-led films or TV? Do you know any women? (laughs) If you do, you can ask them. I got a lot of help on the script from my wife. I would show her scenes and say, you know, what do you think about this? And she'd say, oh, I don't know if she'd say that or maybe the perspective would be more like this. There's a great moment in the film that it's so funny because in post, a lot of the the guys involved at various points, you know, would give notes along the way. And a couple of them pulled up this scene and said, I don't get that. Why do we need that? And the, the description of the scene, not to give anything away, is the main character and a love interest of hers are in bed and he's working on his computer doing some work stuff and she's on her phone doing basically scrabulous words with friends, but we call it words with buddies. And she's playing and he finishes his work on the computer and says, oh, hey, what are you doing? And she says, I'm playing this game. You know, it's it's like Scrabble. And he says, oh, great, let me see. And so reluctantly she hands him the phone and he starts doing the game, you know, with her. And from his point of view, it's like, this is great. We're doing this together. Now, originally in the script, I thought, okay, maybe she's filling out a crossword. She asks him and, and Liz, my wife said, no, 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 have her using her phone and he kind of very gently, but still on a, on a certain level coercively gets her to give him the phone. Yeah. Because that's, that's the first step. That's the first step in getting trapped into a situation where it feels like a nice thing. He's just trying to interact with you and, and seemingly to enjoy this game with you, but he's taken your property and he's insinuated himself in, into your boundaries. And the women instantly got that. All of them who saw it, they're like, I know exactly that moment. So that was a really instructive moment for me. And and that's all because my wife said there's a different view into this scene. First out, shout out to your wife. She sounds amazing. She is. And she was also an executive producer on the film. She helped me along with Rebecca create the character and really figure out like, again, yes, I know it's it's a guy making this movie, but I'm out there asking questions. And yeah. there's there's a lot of scenes of just inherent disrespect that women go through that are in this film. And with a couple of dramatized exceptions towards the end, almost all of them, they're things that have actually happened to people, to to women that I know. And one of the early ones is Blink and You'll Miss It. Two of the female characters, the main character and her best friend, are just walking from her car to her front door. And just while they're chatting, the main character is taking her keys and interlacing them in her fingers and just holding them by their side. And someone said, what is that? And I uh, like at a screening, I said, I think any of the women here can tell you what that is. Yeah. And that's got to have a weapon ready. Mm-hmm. And there's another scene when a, when a woman has to, she's walking away from a dude and pretend she's on the phone because they have to do that. And, and those are just all these things that reinforce this is not for the women. They already know that. I'm trying to get the guys to go, what is that about? Oh, my God. That's how they have to go through life. You know, so that's what it was about. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for doing that. I mean, I hope you continue to make a lot of movies like this about women and other groups that are underrepresented and that the people with privilege like don't understand because it's so true. There's so many little microaggressions and so many little things like little fears that we live out every single day that I think a lot of men have no idea about. And I'm just really grateful that people like you exist and it gives me so much hope for the future of not only this industry, but just like humanity in general. I hope so. But but can I also say, I'm just coming to this late in the game. It never occurs to me things like, hey, someone's going to tell you to smile. And if not, they're going to like follow you. 
My wife's been followed to her car. They're like, that's never going to happen to me. They're just all these little things I don't know. But the other really, really important thing is to me to get across to men, we're all doing it already. And that's, that's what I came to appreciate in the last several years. I have been abusive. And I don't mean physically abusive, but it runs the gamut. It starts with disrespect. It starts with not valuing the women in your life, whether it's making jokes about them behind their back or making, you know, crude remarks or not valuing them as equal. I, I was financially controlling with my wife. I didn't know what that meant. I had to have it explained to me and I had to, and I had to read about it and ask people, but I didn't realize that I, I was the primary breadwinner. And so I was making financial decisions and I thought, oh, well, that's just how it goes. But what that was really doing was kind of trapping my wife in a situation where like, not that she wanted to leave me, but if she had wanted to make any independent decision, she couldn't unless she asked me for permission, which just further exerted my control over her. So it's an ongoing learning experience. I, I, I don't need a medal for realizing that I've been abusive. But when, when we look at, at abuse, and I had this conversation with one of the main male actors, if it takes, let's say, five elements to get to the point where the abuse becomes physical and life-threatening, probably every guy is already capable of the first two, maybe three, and I've already been there. So that's what we need to check ourselves on. And I include myself in that, and I'm, st I'm still not perfect at it. I I'm making mistakes every day, you know? Yeah. We have to keep having the conversations. That's very powerful. I think we live in a culture that makes that kind of abuse invisible. And so the right. fact that you're bringing it out and making it visible is super important. I also really respect that you're willing to call yourself out on it. There's a lot of people, a lot of men who would be afraid to do that. How did you get to the point where you were able to see it in yourself so clearly? And what's your advice for them on how to start holding the mirror up to themselves? I'm sure that Me Too played a part in it. I'm sure that was a huge factor. Just listening to, to women in my life and, and asking them stories and just being willing to, to not have that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, I'm sure he didn't mean that, or, oh, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. I'm sure it didn't happen that way. I've seen some reviews online where, you know, individual keyboard warriors will say, oh, this film hates men. Nobody would ever react that way. And it's like, okay, that actually happened to somebody. We've seen that happen. The other thing is, as I say, if there's a degree, if there are degrees, if there are levels of abuse, just because you haven't gotten to a four, it doesn't mean that you're not a two and it doesn't mean that the fours aren't out there. Mm. So, you know, it, it's, it's like when somebody hears a story about somebody being overtly racist. And I've seen this happen. I was talking to somebody and, and relaying a story that had happened to a friend of mine. And it was my friend, uh, one of my best friends in the world is black. And he was driving and he had a guy like literally pull up next to him, a police officer, and like wind down his window. And he, he made kind of like racially taunting remarks at him for no reason. And I was relaying that story to a friend of mine and said, this is what he drives in fear of. You know, he's black behind the wheel of a nice car. And my friend said, I'm sure it wasn't like that. I'm sure it was a misunderstanding. And I said, just because you can't imagine saying that doesn't mean that other people don't. And by the way, he has a dash cam. So a similar sort of thing. Yeah. You know, we, we have to realize that just because we wouldn't do this extreme doesn't mean that we're not guilty of some of this stuff. And it's okay that we didn't know about it. It's fine. We, we existed in a world for thousands and thousands of years where men held a certain power over women and women didn't have the power to sort of stand up for themselves and, and explain why that wasn't okay. So we didn't know. There was a lot of casual sexism that has been eliminated now that we look back on from shows in the 50s and 60s and go like, oh my God, what were they thinking? You know, I, I grew up watching Star Trek. 
and admiring the philosophy of, of an optimistic future, of a, of a ra- racial harmony, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. But I was reading the original draft of Gene Roddenberry's first Star Trek pilot the other day. And in the descriptions of the women, it's like, she's shapely and does this and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, th- there's a line, um, I can't get comfortable having a female on the bridge. And again, th- these were the guys who were, who were ahead of their time, but there were still certain inherent biases. And we look back now and go, oh my God, why would anyone ever say that? Because they didn't know any better. And that's the same with us. It's okay to not know any better. It's not okay to stick your head in the sand. A hundred percent. I'm just laughing that you brought up the description for the actors because when I moved to LA, my first and only goal at that time was to be an actor. That was all I wanted. So I was on Actors Access like every day just submitting. And the description for the female characters were so horrific and so overtly sexist most of the time that it really like it did discourage me from even trying at times. It was like she's shy, she's plain, but she's sexy without knowing it. Without she, knowing it. She, <laughs> she walks with a strut. That's every guy's fantasy, right? She walks with a strut, yet her head is down and like she's got a shapely body, but she's stick skinny. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Also, none of those are personality traits. You know? Like yeah, they're all physical. what is she yeah. supposed to be like? How, what emotion am I coming at it with? What's my backstory? So, yeah, I'm super grateful, and I'm sure your descriptions are very thoughtful. And I look forward yeah, to reading them. Yeah, they are now. Them. I don't know what they used to be. I hope they weren't that bad. But I remember reading stuff and, again, didn't know any better. You know, I had a chuckle at some of these. I, there was a script I read where there was some female character. And, again, she wasn't the heroine of the piece or anything, but she's still a person. And she was described as, like, Tiffany, you know, uh, like, brunette fuck doll and self-appointed blowjob queen. And I'm like... Okay. Okay. So you're saying that she, she likes what she wants, but you can still have certain characteristics and not do it that way. I, I've got a, a show in development and one of the characters I describe as unapologetically thirsty, mm-hmm. but then there are other things that go along with it and it's okay. Like that's cool. You can say that, I think, without describing her as a self-appointed blowjob queen. or, or Yeah, you could just doll, say you know? she's sex positive too. Like right. that would yeah, be a really a easy description. It. Yeah. Okay. Well, I could talk about that whole thing with you at length, but since we are running out of time, I just want to talk about your leadership style because another quote I lifted from your bio that I'm obsessed with is this. Our films are not the most glamorous and they're made on shoestring budgets, but the one thing we strive to do is take care of our cast and crew. Just last week, I announced that our production now provides both childcare and counseling services. In light of what happened in New Mexico, I feel it is incumbent upon us producers to be the change we want to see in the industry. Tell me about making this decision and how it's affected morale. Well, first, I really value therapy. I think it's important. And I'm in therapy. I have a weekly standing appointment with my therapist and I I talk to her and sometimes it's just to tell her what happened that week because that's a professional person hearing your shit instead of a friend that you're burdening with it. So I believe in that. I believe in talking and if necessary, I believe in, you know, deeper analysis. I just feel because so much of what I've been able to do has been requiring on some level favors from people. You know, our films have been made from anywhere from 250 to $375,000. $375,000. And we, we may be able to push the budget up to 400 if the next round of investment comes through, etc. So you're never going to, people are not going to get paid the huge day rates they want. If they're attracted to the material and if they like working with you, they'll find you. But from my point of view, I, I always think, what extra can we do that gives people sort of opportunities they may not have elsewhere? So, and, and look, I, I don't begrudge anybody for having to make money. 
if the choice is I've got to take that job because I need the extra money, then go with my blessing. But when you do have a choice, if you could work for someone who's going to work you really, really hard to the bone and yell at you and yeah, you'll get a, a nice rate. You could do that. Or when you work for us, you know, IATSE is fighting for 12 hour turnarounds and has settled on 10. We've always done 12 hour turnarounds. We had a rule on our sets that if you were too tired to make your drive home because it had been a long day, we would get you a hotel room. No questions asked. And so on the latest round, it was, okay, we contracted with an online therapy company. And if you wanted therapy, all you had to do was, you know, book with the receptionist, do your Zoom call. We don't know who did it. We just get a bill at the end of it. And then I said, there's a lot of people, well, in fact, not even that many, but there were people on our crew who I knew had kids. And I thought, if we as a society are telling you we value children and we value families and we want you to go out and have kids, then how can we not also turn around and try to make it just a little bit easier for you? So with the limited resources we had, we put aside a little bit of money, contracted with a, a local provider who was in just outside the small town we were filming in, and we got a bulk rate and they understood sometimes we're going to work 12, 13, 14 hour days, not too many, but at least 12 and a half. And they would drop their kids off in the morning if they wanted to, they'd be cared for, and then they'd come get them at the end of the day. And it was, I think only four or five people ever used it, but just knowing it was there, I think was really important to the rest of the crew. Okay, Josh for president, I'm obsessed. <laughs> now, I always say if I was president in the United States, I would make uh, mental health care free and mandatory because I do think it would get to the root cause of so many of our issues. Yeah. And I mean, zooming in a little bit out from the whole United States, the entertainment industry is riddled with mental health issues and with people in power who should never have had that ability due to their unresolved trauma. Right. I mean, obviously more people like you would be helpful, but like, what can we do to help resolve some of these mental health issues that are in entertainment and getting people who are extremely mentally ill out of power positions? Well, geez, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that collectively we kind of just need to not take any shit from anybody. Yeah. Like what happened in New Mexico was an absolute disgrace. And one of the things that happened among not having enough safety and not having an armorer who was working correctly and whatever it was, taking guns home on weekends and, and skipping safety briefings, even, even leaving aside as awful as that was. And obviously that's what caused the, you know, the murder of, uh, Helena. What's awful about some of those shows is from the top, they just decide we're going to go for the cheapest options possible. Now, again, I know as an indie filmmaker, you have to squeeze every life out of every penny. But when it comes to not letting your crew crash for the night and making up stories like, no, no, I know it's, it's, it's if you're here for more than 14 hours, but you didn't work more than 14 hours. You know, if on a $350,000 film, we could afford to get hotel rooms for people for the night, then on a $7 million film, you can do it too. The only difference is that we actually gave a shit about it. You have to work for people who want to give a shit. And if they don't give a shit, you have to get together with your friends and say, hey, you know, this isn't cool. I'll tell you one story that was really instructive for me. We were working on my second film, Black Bags, and we were finishing up a scene, but we were about to run into lunch. Now, we can't afford to work union crews like IATSE films on these low, low budget films. But what we always try to swear by is we'll give them union conditions. So we can't pay into pension and health. But we'll give them meal penalties. We give them the 12-hour turnarounds. When we call lunch, it's lunch. We don't work anybody, you know, outside of the regular hours. And we were about to run into lunch and we needed to get this one shot and we didn't have time. We had to call for grace, which for those of you who don't know, that's when you can go around, you can ask the crew, can we have up to, but no longer than 15 minutes to finish this exact shot that is already set up? You can't start a new setup. You can't start a new scene. You can't move the camera, but it's just like, we're almost done with this. Can we wrap this before we go to lunch? 
So we went around and all the crew have to agree to it. And so they were all coming back. Yep, 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 no problem. And then it got to one senior member of the crew and he said no. And then from there, it was like, okay, well, if he said no, it's it's a non-starter. And so the first AD said, okay, everybody, that's lunch. And I thought, I don't get it. I thought everybody was happy. What's going on? So I thought to myself, all right, I'm the director on this film, but I'm also the producer. I'm going to find out what's going on. So I took him aside at lunch and I said, hey, we've obviously done something. We've upset the crew. What's going on? I need to know. And he said, look, it's not a big deal. And I said, no, no, no. Like, if you're not giving grace, there's a reason for it. What are we doing wrong? And he said, okay, we've had to, you know, we've wrapped on time, you know, every day. But whenever we wrap on a 12 and a half hour day, the crew generally will spend at least 30 to 60 minutes putting their equipment away. And they get overtime for that. But they also get into uh, a meal penalty because... By that time, you're either supposed to have a break and get lunch or you get paid for not having a second lunch, basically. And I said, yeah, but you got a meal penalty. He said, we're exhausted. We don't want a meal penalty. We wanted food. We want the energy. And I said, you know what? I think the assumption was just that you wanted to get out of here quickly. So just take the money and run. He said, no, honestly, like a couple of pizzas, we would have been really happy. Stop for 15 minutes, eat, and then we would have loaded out a lot faster. And I said, okay, from now on. It'll never be a problem again. And I went to the line producer and I said, here's the new paradigm. They don't want the meal penalty. Like we we were wrong. We made an assumption. They want to be fed. So from that point on, there was always a second meal called if we needed it. And we only had to ask for grace one or two more times, but it was never a problem. But you just got to listen. There's always going to be a little chafing because even when you treat crews well, they have trauma from past experiences. They expect you to screw them over subconsciously so you know you have to go and you have to you have to be good to your word and then you have to to follow through well it's like getting in a good relationship after you've been in a bad relationship a little thing happens and it's nothing is meant by it but because you're so traumatized if you're triggered in any way even a slight way you start to assume the worst so i wish you would write a book about leadership because you're just dropping (laughs) some real wisdom bombs right now okay i really want to ask you about william shatner before, oh, of course, we, yeah. before we wrap this Bill. up. Okay, so I didn't even know you were an insane Star Trek fan, so this must be really an amazing big deal to you. But you're writing or you've written a book with William Shatner that comes out this year, correct? October? Correct. It's called Boldly Go, and it comes out on October 4th. You, it, available pre-sale now from all good booksellers. Okay, how did this come about? How did writing this book come about? I asked. That's the simplest way I can put it. I asked. Just like everything we talked about, I wasn't going to die wondering. I had an idea for a book for William Shatner. And I had met him in passing on three separate occasions. Once at one of his uh, his charity horse show dinners when I was a volunteer. Again, when one of my best friends, Jonathan Sadowski, was on a show called Shit My Dad Says and William Shatner was the star. He brought us backstage, met him very briefly. And then he did four episodes of another show that I worked on called Haven. And he came into the writer's room and he met all of us then. So I knew his assistant. I at least had her email address. And I had this idea and I I thought to myself, I'm going to reach out because what's the harm in asking? I don't expect to hear back. I don't expect uh, anything to come of it. But if I don't ask, I'm going to regret that. So I emailed her and I said, hi, I have an idea for a book, a nonfiction book for Mr. Shatner. Is anybody on his team taking pictures? And I thought, okay, I've sent the email. It's out there in the ether. If I never hear back, at least I've asked. I get an email back the next day. Hi, nice to hear from you, Josh. I spoke with Bill and he'd like to call you at three o'clock tomorrow. So the next day he calls me. And I've got my little pitch in front of me and, I, and I'm thinking, I've got like, I still have saved in my phone because of all places, I was actually in um, the Caribbean on vacation with my wife and not supposed to be working. And I said to her, you know, can I send this email? You know, it's not really work. I'm not going to hear anything back. And she said, yeah, sure. 
But I heard back the next day, I said, can I take this call? She said, William Shatner wants to call you. Of course you can take this call. <laughs> and I still have the, the little message from when they couldn't get through. You know, hi, it's Josh. I've got Bill on the line, blah, blah, blah. And for my feeling at the time, I just felt just having this phone call is a win. Asking the question was a win. Getting an answer was a win. Getting the phone call is a win. So I've got my little document and I give them the pitch of my life. I spent about 10 minutes. Mr. Shatner, you've done this. And I think, what a story of your wisdom you can tell and blah, 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 blah. And there's this pause. And then he says, in only the way that William Shatner can, he says two things. I think it would be arrogant for me to suggest that I have wisdom that can apply to anyone else's life. I've been very lucky. I feel the universe has carried me along. He's 89 at the time. He's 91 now. And he says, but I don't have any wisdom for anybody else. I only know what's worked for me. And I've been very, very lucky that way. And what interests me is the moments in every day that I can look at and find beauty in. And he relayed this story of when in the 70s, he was driving across a highway in Montreal, Canada, where he and my mother are both from, which is kind of cool. Mm. And he said there was an apple orchard with a branch of apples hanging over the highway. And he pulled his car off and he picked an apple and bit into it. And in that exact moment, it had reached its perfect maturation point where he could still hear the crack of the skin and feel the taste of the juice flowing down his throat. And he said that was a perfect moment in nature. And he lives for those moments. He gets up every day and he goes and he plays with his dogs and he still rides horses four or five days a week. And he looks for moments and he reads voraciously. And he said, that's what interests me. So I don't think that this book is it. And I said, well, Bill, that's the book. (laughs) What you've just described is the book. So he said, okay, interesting. Well, why don't you write me a few pages? And if I like it, then we'll see if somebody wants to buy it. So, you know, fast forward. He didn't know he was going into space at that point. We start writing the book. We put together a proposal. We get this great editor on board and we write three full chapters, a full introduction, market research, biography, all this sort of stuff, you know, and I'm working on it and I'm sending him pages and he's giving me notes and and we really want it to pop. Then we find out he's going to space, which is amazing. He goes to space. And the morning he goes, the media coverage is off the wall. And I'm on vacation again. I'm on a two-day getaway. And my editor calls me at five in the morning because it's eight where she is in New York. And I, you know, I'm asleep. I call her when I wake up and she says, you have to get this proposal out today. So I spent the rest of the day. My wife went off, got a massage. And I'm, I'm you know, furiously editing this thing, typing up my laptop. And then later that week, we had a deal with Simon & Schuster and Atria Books. And then we're off to the races. That is an amazing story, Josh. My therapist once said to me that if I ever do write a book, it has to be called, I don't know, I'm going to ask. Is that not the greatest advice, though? Yeah. Curiosity. Be polite. Be polite. (laughs) Politely ask. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, so obviously you and William Shatner have had a lot of moments together at this point. What is he like in real life? What are your conversations like? Yeah. William Shatner is the most interesting person I've ever met. And he's lived five lifetimes in the course of 91 years, and he's not done. He's also one of the smartest people I've ever met. He just has this retention of knowledge. He can't remember what he ate for breakfast, but he can remember remember all of these other things. I, like, I remember just struggling to keep up with him. He'll talk about black holes and synthetic universes and this and that. And then he'll say something in the middle of a conversation where, oh, and of course you remember LaGrange. And I'm like, LaGrange, LaGrange, the ZZ Top song from the 70s? He says, no, no, LaGrange, the mathematician from 1754 who proved that a thing with a thing does this. I'm like, whoa. So he's really remarkable in that way. And the funny thing is, he's so different in private to how he's perceived in public. 
He can be perceived as this, you know, gruff, big shot actor and all that sort of stuff. But that's just because that's the world he lives when he's out there. To me, he's been one of the warmest, most kind people I've ever met. And and I remember we started one of our Zoom conversations and he said, what have you got on tonight? And I said, oh, it's my wife and my seventh anniversary. We're going out for dinner. He said, oh, tell me about it. How did you meet? And all this sort of stuff. And then he said, send me a picture when you're out. So I sent him a picture and he wrote back, you two are the, the cutest couple in America, you know? So it's a side, it's a, it's a real cuddly kind of grandfather side that a lot of people don't see because he's out there, you know, being William Shatner. What's the best advice he's given you? That's the thing about Bill. He doesn't really dispense advice because he, it's, it's so funny because people think of him as this arrogant actor, but he's actually really humble. He says, I don't have advice that'll work for you. I can only tell you what works for me. So I guess... I've learned more from him than I've been given direct advice. And that is really just, he has a philosophy of saying yes. He likes to say yes. He likes to leave doors open. That doesn't mean he'll, he'll say yes to every request, but he doesn't automatically say no. He'll, he'll always look for, well, maybe this is something that I want to do. I mean, I had no business writing this book with him. I've never written a book in my life, right? I mean, I know how to turn a phrase. I've written screenplays and Thankfully, he thinks I did a great job. He said some really nice things about me in the acknowledgement about my facility with words, which is enormously heartwarming. But he he says, just try to say yes, figure out what works for you. And, and so I didn't expect to get a reply. I didn't expect him to call me when he didn't like my idea. I didn't expect him to pitch me a new one. I didn't expect him to say yes to that. And I didn't expect to be here with the book coming out next month. But we are here because he he tries to say yes to everything. Keep the doors open. So that's the advice, you know? Well, Joshua, Josh, king of the yes and, (laughs) most brilliant leader that I think I've ever had on the show, and a go-getter from a very young age making his own films. I have a final question for you. If you and the you from 13 years ago who moved (laughs) to LA were standing in the same room and you were looking at each other, What do you think you would say to that younger version of you and why? I probably would say there are going to be peaks and valleys. Keep going. And what do you think he would say to you today and why? He might say, uh, oh, I didn't know you could pull off a beard. (laughs) Uh, Or, well, if you're writing a book with Bill Shatner, you must have done something right. So I'm all on board. He's definitely right about that. What an amazing story you have. I hope that you write a story about your life someday. And I really hope that you write a book about leadership because I think that there's something that could really be learned from the way you are leading, the holistic approach you have to leadership and to collaboration, which very few people have, the way you lead with mental health, with seeing from other people's perspectives. It's very powerful. It's what I call soul, S-O-U-L-C-I-A-L, social justice. And Mm. I believe it's what's going to change this world. So thank you for being a light in our world, in our industry. Thank you. It was an honor to have you on. Can can I just say, though, just on the leadership thing, I also, I get advice. I read books when I can. And I've I've sought out leaders in, in different areas. And again, just asked, I have a mentor who I I go to for questions about leadership. And he's a former rugby league player from Australia. I I didn't go to the business people. I didn't go to the film people because they could tell me specifics in their industry. But what I observed from him, his name is Cooper Cronk, and he's he's a treasure of a a human being and a a former, like one of the greatest rugby league players in Australian history, played for for his country, everything. And I go to him and and I actually sought out his manager through a connection and I said, I think I can learn from this guy. And, you know, does he do one-on-one coaching? And he said, 
no, he doesn't, but you've got an interesting story. I'll, I'll tell him about you. So then when I was in Sydney, we all met, we talked, we had lunch. And then, you know, we've been working together for, for about a year and a half. And again, I asked and he had no reason to say yes, except, you know, people, sometimes they, they see something in you and they want to pass on what they can. So it's not, it's not inbuilt. It's because I'm curious. Mm. Yeah. Curiosity is the key to everything. Curiosity, passion, hard work, caring about people. These are the, the hallmarks of your story. So oh, thank you. Really beautiful. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Joshua Brandon. For more info on Josh, follow him at the Josh Brandon. And be sure to watch his film, A Thousand Little Cuts, out now on Hulu and other places too, according to Google. As well as his co-written book with William Shatner, Boldly Go. That's out this October. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode of Unleash. You can follow her at Rach E. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. My wish for you this week is that you stop waiting for someone to give you an opportunity and instead give one to yourself. Make your own dreams come true. Who knows what your brilliant mind could create and the life that might unfold around that creation. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.